Hi there, Rob Verkirk here. Welcome to our new series, Heart to Heart. This is where we select experts from around the world so we can dive in and dissect issues, hopefully try to make more sense of some of the key issues that face us, particularly around natural health. So, Mark, it's amazing to have you here in Chilworth, in our yeah. offices in the Surrey Hills. Yeah, after a year working together at the, the council and other projects and admiring your, your work and thriving off it, uh, to actually physically be together and digging some dirt this morning, doing some gardening. Yeah, well look, vice versa, um, Dr. Trotsy, um, dot org is where you can find all of Mark's work. Um, and um, ours is anhinternational.org. So, um, and we're going to release this on both sites. So this is very much a joint effort, and it's a, it's another Chilworth conversation. Nice. Um, so, um, but Mark, what were we doing this morning? Well, we were working in your uh, flower beds here at your headquarters, uh, preparing to do some organic things with the earth. So. Yeah. So yeah, this is this is one of the the processes that um, many of us feel uh, we need to do now, which is if we have spare bits of land, let's use it to grow some food, wholesome organic food. And um, you've got to think about where the seeds are coming from. You've got to think about the quality of the soil, um, and um, and it's just so great, isn't it? To you would normally get up and do some yoga, but yeah, today was shovel yoga. Yeah, we, we did put a lot me of shoveling. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, Mark, just for the people who don't know you, um, which is going to be more of our audience, mm -hmm. tell us about your background. Sure, sure. So, um, I've been an emergency doctor in Canada for 25 years with a deep interest in trauma medicine, critical resuscitation. I've been teaching those for more than a decade. That's really been the, the mainstay of, uh, of my work. Um, when COVID was launched, uh, I was in the emergency department, took things, you know, uh, initially at face value and, uh, but, uh, both through, you know, researching, which is, which is what a responsible doctor should do. If you, if you hear there's a, a disease, you should, you should research, try to figure out what it is and how you're going to treat it. And, um, and, and what I, what I found was there was a couple of big disconnects between what was the, the campaign, the agenda, what the media is saying, what public health was doing, what the regulatory bodies were demanding, what the World Health Organization, that was all one big, we now know, global campaign. And, and then what was really happening? So when people were being told hospitals are full and people are dying of COVID, really it was predominantly not the case. Hospitals tended to be empty. If anything, people weren't coming because of the fear of COVID. So people may have been home dying of cancer, heart attacks, all kinds of things for not seeking treatment. But at a time when people were, you know, I would go into public because I work in small community. People would say, oh, doc, what you're going through? Like, you know, we were we were really being touted as superheroes who were fighting this great pandemic. And the truth was we weren't, uh, we were like, for the first time in 25 years, I wasn't working hard. I had been working hard. And there was progressively a lot of pressure to go along with things that didn't make sense. Uh, there was complete denial like vehement denial when one started talking about treatments that worked like zinc, like hydroxychloroquine, like ivermectin. Um, and, and, and at the same time, there was plenty of reward. Like if you went along with it, you could really have a real quiet time, do a lot of work on your laptop 
get paid more than before. So because of those things, I, I stayed in the system, you know, and continued to be myself, which is a person who thinks and speaks, which is part of our basic, yeah. you know, people rights. Um, and it became harder and harder. So by the end of 2020, beginning of 2021, I, I knew that somebody, certainly in my corner of the world in Canada, somebody had to tell the people the truth. So I, in an attempt to not burn bridges, I resigned all my, I just said, I'm taking a human rights work sabbatical, which this is clearly a human rights situation. And, uh, and an emergency. And oh, and clearly the big emergency. I mean, uh, you know, especially when you're having people being corralled into a phenomenally dangerous misrepresented injection or a variety of dangerous injections. So I took a complete sabbatical. Um, I went to the media that, like in Canada, we have some real media. We have a lot of state broadcasters, but we have like Rebel News. We have Bright Light News. We have Canada Strong and Free, you know. So initially I went to Rebel News, which is one of the more significant, well-established ones. And I told them the truth about the PCRs. I told them the truth about the injections uh, and set up a website and just committed myself to, and, and my small team, committed ourselves to telling people the truth and trying to get back to a sane place where, where science was real and where human rights were real. Um, and it's really, it, it's to my surprise. I thought, you know, once the cat's out of the bag, I thought we'd had this done a long time ago, but here we are more than a year later. And um, despite me doing this outside of the, 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 any clinical work, yeah, I still find myself engaged with the medical regulatory bodies who are quite deeply embedded and they're big accomplices to the crimes that are going on. So that's kind of, of my history uh, and how I ended up here. Now, of course, in our circle, you're, 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 you're famous. I mean, and, uh, oh, no, I mean, really, I, you've been a great source of, of really detailed scientific knowledge. Um, but okay. perhaps as well for, for people hearing this on our platform that they have heard of you because we've covered a fair bit of your work, but if you could give us a little brief yeah. about your background. Um, so my background is, is actually in ecology. Um, um, it's also in sustainability, sustainable agriculture. Um, and, um, so I've, I've really, my, my career has been divided between 10 years, um, as a scientific campaigner on environmental issues in Australia. In fact, social issues as well, because I'm very involved with indigenous rights, Aboriginal land rights. Um, but, but really the Aboriginal elder said, you know, you've got to solve some of the white fella problems. And, and as far as they're concerned, the degradation of the land was, was right up there as one of the major ones. And they're also very concerned about the poisoning of the land through agrochemicals, environmental chemicals. And um, so I was, I was um, campaigning on those issues with a group of scientists in a NGO called the Total Environment Center. Um, at that time, I was one of the youngest. I was in my early 20s. Um, and we had a crew of wise, you know, monkeys. Some of them had, had um, it's funny that we talk about monkeys because I think we're going to talk more about that later. Um, but um, yeah, we, we, we did have these elders who were people who were either very senior scientists like um, Professor uh, John Pollock, who was an embryologist at Sydney University, um, Herbert Beecham, who was um, ex-chemical industry. He'd had his wake-up call. Um, and we had this amazing collaboration, and we, we, we got a shed load of chemicals taken off the market, and we built relationships with, with doctors working in the 
um, field of um, chemical sensitivities, um, and um, but also we were working on other issues such as deforestation. So um, I then went back to academia. I went back to Imperial College, um, where I was going to go ten years earlier. Um, got a distinction in my master's, straight into a PhD, um, which I did actually at Imperial College in two years, um, which you can't do anymore. Um, so um, and then went straight into seven years of postdoc, and um, and during that work I was really working on how do you create complexity in agroecosystems to make them more stable and you know how do you work with local genetic diversity rather than imported genetic diversity and um, and along the lines you know during that journey um, I was really very much aware that there were incredibly important compounds within plants that drive a lot of these interactions you know all the compounds in plants, these so-called secondary metabolites, um, they are communicating agents not only within the plant, but also into the atmosphere, releasing compounds that are airborne, that signal to, um, they cry for help to call in so-called natural enemies that, that will stop massive assaults from herbivores. Um, and in that process, you've got to kind of, the, the more you look after that plant, the richer the soil, um, you know when the water conservation is just right so you, you're not you know you, you've got your drainage right uh, the plant thrives and and it thrives when it's in a community of other plants so um, this idea of monoculturing um, and, and having to use a bunch of chemicals to maintain that monoculture didn't make any sense so um, I went from that um, into realizing that I was being pushed into a permanent career at Imperial College and when I was offered a permanent job I jumped out, set up, set up the Alliance for Natural Health and we're now 20 years on. Wow. So I've been applying those principles really to healthcare ever since and, um, and then Covid came and that's when you and I met. Right, right. Excellent. So Rob, it, it's interesting, a, a whole lot of new, um, I guess to be nice, I'll call it technology has been rolled out in, since the COVID era began. And it, it's, it's been a lot to do with genetics. So for instance, the PCR test has been this duplicating of fragments of genetic material in people's noses essentially, uh, and looking at infectious disease from a, a point of view of fragments of, of genetic material. But even more importantly than that, now we have these non-vaccines, as I would call them, these injections, which uh, they have a variety of ingredients that aren't disclosed, but the ones that are disclosed, um, they're now you know, messing around with the human uh, genetic machinery. So we have people being receiving injections, whether it's of messenger RNA for this patented, modified, hyper-persistent and toxic weaponized version of the coronavirus spike protein, or having uh, injections where you're delivering by, you know, another method, but delivering into the human actual DNA, double-stranded DNA that relates to the same uh, weaponized spike protein. So, and it's interesting, you know, one thing I've learned through this process from getting to work with yourself and many others and, and really opening to a much more diverse form of scientists than I was previously working with for the last 25 years, one thing's been very clear is that this industry uh, this pharmacology industry, like a, like a lot of, uh, 
a lot of industries that concern me this, these days, and I know they concern you too, they oversimplify things and they like to you know, point our nose at one thing and ignore everything else. So, so there's so much focus on, on, on genetic uh, dabbling as a solution to our problems. And in the context of this, we know that, and we have, we have evidence I've presented on our site before from human liver cells and, and other research showing that not only can this genetic material come into our body and take over some of our cellular machinery and have us poisoning ourselves with this toxic spike protein, but as well, there's, there's the very real element of this getting incorporated into the human genetic code. Who knows, there's, there, you've, you've presented measuring the proteinaceous content of these injections and said, hey, there's a whole bunch more stuff here that they're not disclosing. So who knows what else is being done with the human genetic code? So my question, Rob, is is it's not that simple. The human messing around with human genetics is not that simple. We've been we've been sort of conditioned to think, well, if you get the genes right, that's what the body turns out to be. But but you've discussed before, and I'd love you to share with the audience like the greater complexity of the connection between genes and our existence. Mm. Yeah, look, it's it's a really interesting question, Mark. The the bottom line is, maybe in a hundred years' time, if we look back at this era, um, even if we look back another 70 years and we look at the post-World War II era, we may see it as the petrochemical era, where petrochemicals were the basis for a lot of the te technological innovations. So we, we saw pharmaceuticals that were patented. They were new to nature. They had to be new to nature, despite the fact that 75% of pharmaceuticals originate from a molecular structure that's been found in nature. But that has to be altered. So we still see this conflict now between, for example, herbal medicine or the dietary supplement in the industry that uses a lot of dietary supplements based on plant-based materials that are unmodified from nature. Some of them are biosynthetic or totally synthetic and copies, but, but the average person doesn't understand the distinction. Um, but what the pharmaceutical industry has done is, is usually take a particular active principle, the most active principle, taking it out of the matrix in which it exists within nature and, and then has applied a patent on it so it can deal with the business of disease. Um, and of course, the other, if we look at where we've gone to more recently, it is the era of, of genetics, and it's also an era of computer science moving into the realms of AI. So we might think of it, the era we're now in is the genomic AI era. Those are the two really dominant technologies. So biotechnology that's being taught to school children is, is often... Um, sorry, biology that's being taught to school children is often really biotechnology. Then they're, they're not learning a lot about the natural sciences. So the problem with moving down the, the, the road of genomics is you've got to understand what genetic information is about. My, my, my sense is that we are just babes in the wood. You know, we, we, we understand, I mean, the, the, the principles of genetic engineering was so concerning for so many of us for so long because we were taking little cassettes of a genome and splicing them into a genome of a, often an unrelated organism, a plant. 
Um, and, and I'll take an example of, say, taking spider genes from a spider and putting them into a wheat plant. And, and in nature, while there is a lot of reallocation of different genes with viruses actually being one of the most important agents. I mean, viruses are essentially genetic transfer agents. Um, and yet we've got a public out there who see viruses as these evil things that, that are, you know, pathogens are going to always give you disease. We would not be here if it wasn't for viruses. Um, so, and, and the, the, the problem is when we start playing with little pieces of the genome, um, we've got to understand what the non-local effects are. So we've got, you know, in the human genome, 98% of it is non-expressing genetic material. And so we used to think of that as genetic junk. Now we realize it plays a role that we don't fully understand, but within it is incorporated a huge amount of information. So if you take a little splice from one area, it can have a non-local effect on the expression of genes in a different area, a different part of the, that chromosome. So, um, you know, we're, we're now in a situation with genomics where we are completely obsessed by it. So we, we've seen, say with monkeypox, we've seen a very diluted case definition that I've explained if you go back to the original case definitions from the 1970s when you didn't have a molecular sequencing technique to do any ID. You've got to remember, all of taxonomy has moved down the kind of molecular route. So all this beautiful descriptive stuff that looks at the phenotype, not the genotype, is really important. So, you know, we all know that, um, I'll take the example of smallpox and monkeypox. They're two very closely related viruses they can, in certain people, in certain conditions, produce lesions that are very, very similar to each other. And you can understand if they are very, very similar, yet smallpox carries with it much greater risk, a mort greater mortality risk, that, you know, it makes sense to, to um, use another technique, and if that technique is a genomic technique. But what we know about what's happening at the moment is the lesions that people are getting outside of Central and West Africa, the areas where monkeypox has been circulating since 1970. Um, it's very, very different. It, it's, um, it's much milder. Um, the lesions are much smaller. They look pretty different. Um, but they've given us this description that's so wide, it incorporates, you know, any kind of rash, um, you know, even a shingles rash that may be caused from a COVID-19 injection adverse reaction. Um, so, um, yeah, that, that is great, of great concern. And, you know, when we look at where we are in terms of this acceptance, you know, we spent 25 years around the world in a public debate on whether we should incorporate genetically modified foods into the food supply you know you north americans you were kind of more up for it us europeans <laughs> less so because we said well, sure. we said let's have some transparency on this and tell people if the food is genetically modified and we all found out from numerous surveys that 
most people, if they knew it was gen genetically modified, wouldn't put those foods in their body. So it turns out that about you know 80% plus of all the compounded animal feed that's fed to farm animals in Europe that comes from genetically modified maize coming in mainly from South America, Brazil, Argentina, etc., is genetically modified and, you know, that's printed on the animal feed packets, but, you know, most animals don't read a lot, so mm -hmm. um, they don't get a chance to object, um, but humans <coughs> want it. And yet, when it comes to a gene-modified um, uh, pharmaceutical product, um, people have just said, like, give it to me. Um, and it, it's largely because we haven't had that debate.